The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, very often people are totally surprised or dare I even say just flabbergasted when I say that the Lord saved me at my time at Furman University. So I don't, there, there's not many of us in this body that are, are Furman grads. I think Carrie and myself might be the only ones. Uh, if there's anybody else I'm missing, please uh, come tell me. We can, we can share about our experiences and our time. But people are just flabbergasted when I say that I came to know the Lord at Furman. And in some ways, I, I get it. And in some ways, I don't get it. So in 1990, Furman uh, decided to, to vote to remove themselves from the Southern Baptist Convention. And that took about a year and a half process with the South Carolina Baptist Convention. They were removed. And then over the last 30 years, the university that I, that I went to, it's about 30 minutes from here, for those of you who, who don't know, it has run pretty hard away from uh, the Christian faith. I remember it, I think our, our graduation um, the invocation was, you know, something like, oh, great being out there that cares for all of people. Just very generic and, and, and nothing kind of to it. It's run away from the faith. But by God's grace and in his kindness, a place that is, that is dark, a place that is filled with people who don't know the Lord, great work can happen there. It is ripe for the harvest. The church is sent out, preach the gospel, and people come to faith. Now, this happened with me. Ordinary friends, ordinary people working for different ministries at Furman shared the gospel faithfully with me over about a year and a half time frame. And slowly the Lord revealed to me himself, and I turned to Jesus in faith. Ordinary people, people you will never know. Maybe a couple of you know one or two of the people that were so vital to me coming to the faith. These ordinary people shared the gospel. My life was changed. And now I'm up here as as one of the pastors of Ridgewood Church seeking to sow the seed of the gospel to you and then joining with you in sowing the seed of the gospel in our neighborhoods, with our friends, in our communities, with our family members. Everyone in here has been impacted by somebody that most others in this room don't know. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, you have been impacted, say by a parent, a little league coach, an elementary school teacher, a Sunday school teacher, a mentor, all of us have been discipled, poured into, mentored by someone. We're going to get to see a little bit of this in Acts chapter 8. Ordinary people sharing the gospel, caring for other people, pouring in to other people. So let's go back and read Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 1. We'll read through verse 8. And Saul approved of his execution... And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. 
But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Now the first part of verse 1, Saul approved of his execution. We see, we see Saul, who approved of the killing of Stephen, which has kind of been the, the context of the last two chapters. And then verse 3, this man Saul has ravaged the church. He's dragged Christians out of their homes and he's put them in prison. It feels like we're building towards Saul being the antagonist of this story or this part of the story. We seem to be on a collision course between Saul and the, uh, the apostles, these, these first disciples. Now the second part of verse one, there's a great persecution that is taking place against the church in Jerusalem. Now based on the context of the last few verses or the last couple chapters, and then the end of this verse, except the apostles, we can know that this, this persecution was against the Hellenist. We're first introduced in the scriptures to the Hellenists in chapter 6, verse 1. They are Greek-speaking Jews, and Stephen is one of their key leaders. Now, the, the Hellenists, they lived outside of Judea. So they were born outside of Jerusalem and Judea. They were kind of uh, separated from the center of Judaism and the center of now Christianity. And then essentially they retired to Jerusalem. So they spent a good part of their lives outside of Jerusalem and now they've come into Jerusalem, kind of first uh, generation, second generation, they've come to the homeland. Now this is contrasted with Hebraic Jews who speak Aramaic, they're born in Jerusalem or Judea. This is the, the center of their, their lives. And so the Hebraic Jews have, have a home in Jerusalem, but the Hellenists face persecution. So the apostles, really Hebraic Jews, stayed behind. And the Hellenists are scattered, according to verse 1. Now where are they scattered to? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Some of Jesus' final words are fulfilled right here in verse 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. We've seen that take place. We have witnesses in Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, that really started. And in all Judea and Samaria, the exact two places labeled in verse 1 of chapter 8 and to the end of the earth. Now, Judea is really the, the county of Jerusalem and Samaria is kind of the, the next region over a little bit further away. We think about, you know, Greer and Greenville and Spartanburg. Greer is, is kind of our city. It's where we're at. But there's, there's Greenville County. There's Spartanburg County. There's a lot of distance that's taken up with that. And I know, you know, if we're from Greer, we like to say we're from Greer. We're not, we're not from Greenville. We're not from Spartanburg. This, this is our home. This is, this is our area. And in the scriptures, there's been this kind of long-standing separation and gap both physically 
and emotionally between the Jews and the Samaritans. They have been on unfriendly relationships, and this dates back a very long time. 500 years prior, the, the Israelites had gone into exile, and their temple had been destroyed, and they're, they're coming back home, and they decide to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. But the Samaritans decide to, they, they refuse to help with this rebuilding, and they build pretty much a rival temple in Samaria. Now, when we think about these Hellenists being scattered, and that language is used pretty regularly in these verses, in the Old Testament, that often is a sign of judgment. If we think about back to Acts 2, I did a good bit of, of teaching on uh, the Tower of Babel, uh, Genesis 10. And it, it, in the Tower of Babel, the Lord dispersed the people in judgment. He scattered them as a result of his judgment. But really, we're going to see here the scattering is actually a way God blesses his people. Verse 4, they were scattered, and what did they do? They preach the word. This same, this same phrase, to, to preach, is used in verse 12, verse 25, verse 35, verse 40. It's filled throughout chapter 8. Chapter 8 is, is centered on the proclamation of who Christ is, a preaching of the word. Preaching seems vital for the scattered church. And Trevor really showed us last week that, that persecution, the persecution against Stephen and then these other Hellenists, fuels mission. Persecution fuels proclamation. Now, who is doing this preaching? Who are these Hellenists? They're not the apostles. They're not the Christians that have kind of descended from the, from the chosen people of Israel. But they're Greek-speaking Jews. They're Greek-speaking now Christians. They're, they're ordinary Christians spreading the gospel. They're not preaching from a pulpit. They're scattered about having informal conversations with friends and even chance acquaintances in homes as they walk about the roads in marketplaces. Michael Green uses the phrase that they gossiped the gospel. They did so naturally. They did it enthusiastically, and they did it with the conviction of those who have been genuinely changed by the Lord Jesus and who are genuinely following the Lord Jesus. And we're going to see some people, see one person in particular in our passage tonight who struggles with that. The gospel spreads through normal, everyday people like you and like me, preaching and proclaiming Christ. Now, verse 5, Luke introduces us to Philip. Philip, who is on mission, is a Hellenist, but this isn't the first time that Luke has told us about Philip. He is, uh, in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, he's chosen as one of the, the deacons, one of the people to serve the widows, the widows who are Hellenist. And then in chapter 21, verse 8, Philip is going to be called Philip the Evangelist. And that really starts in our passage here tonight. Philip goes down to Samaria and he proclaims Christ. And the crowds are captivated at Philip's words and at Philip's deeds, both at what he says and at what he does. Remember in, in Acts especially, we've talked about this a few times up through uh, Acts 1 through 7, Miraculous signs often accompany the spread of the gospel 
to new areas as almost an affirmation of what is being proclaimed. Now, Acts is a, is a historical book. It, we, we're not necessarily commended to do everything we read about in Acts. From this passage tonight, we're not necessarily commended to follow in Philip's footsteps and start an exorcism and healing ministry. We need the rest of the Bible to speak into what we are learning from our passage tonight. There's something exceptional about how God worked at this time, 2,000 years ago, when he is establishing his church. He worked uniquely through the apostles, through Stephen, through the Hellenist, through Philip, through all these others that we're going to learn about throughout the rest of Acts. There's this unique nature to the early church's ministry. And then verse 8, what is the result of Philip and these other Hellenists proclaiming Christ? Joy. Now, how awesome is that? We firmly believe that if we put off Satan, much as what happens in the verses right before verse 8, and we turn to Christ, that this is going to bring lasting joy. We recognize the Christian life is not easy. Much of what is taking place here in Acts 8 is all the result of persecution, of hardship, of trial. But the Lord brings lasting joy. I remember Bryce sharing, I think it was when we were teaching through our, our covenant, he talked about just try following Jesus and see if there isn't more joy, peace, hope, even in the hardest of times in following Jesus. And we get a taste of that in this passage, verse 8. There's joy in the city at Christ being proclaimed and these unique works being done. Verse 9. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God, In the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. So in verse 9, we're, we're introduced to this character, Simon, commonly known as Simon the Sorcerer or Simon Magus in non-biblical early Christian writings, first and second century Justin Martyr is a a second century Christian. He's a Samaritan. He talks about Simon that all his countrymen, all his fellow Samaritans revered Simon as the highest God. Irenaeus, another early Christian father, saw Simon as the father of Gnosticism, which is this 
dualistic heresy that viewed the spiritual realm as good and the physical realm is bad. The church fathers equate this, this guy, Simon, that really develops in the first and second century with this Simon we're introduced to in Acts 8. Verse 10 in the, in the NASB, it says, this man is what is called the great power of God. So Simon impressed the Samaritans with his magical power. He revealed himself as one who really channeled and embodied divine power and revealed God. Essentially, he was an emanation from the supreme God, a very Gnostic view. And Luke depicts Simon as just one who is a fraud, one who seeks to make money and deceive people with dark magic. And we get a clear contradiction. Those who are scattered, the Hellenists, they face persecution and they're proclaiming Christ. Simon is out for money and is out to elevate himself. But we quickly see that dark forces lose. The crowds paid attention to Philip, verse 6. They paid attention to Simon, verse 10. And yet they were baptized, verse 12, based on Philip's teaching. Only one of these guys teaching and life had the power to change the lives of others. Philip preached the good news about the kingdom of God, verse 12, and the name of Jesus Christ. He's just furthering what he's done in verse four and five. And what do people do? They respond with belief and then they are baptized. And this even furthers Acts chapter four, verse 12. It'll be on the screen. He's just further emphasizing this. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name, Jesus, under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The men and women who had previously been captivated by Simon were now captivated by the Christ that Philip the evangelist shares. And in many ways, we might be able to summarize that that Simon captured the eyes of the Samaritans, but Philip, and really Jesus, captured the hearts of the Samaritans. Verse 13, we learn that, that Simon believes, quotation marks, to some extent. He recognizes Philip, this, this herald of the good news, this guy, he has more power than I do. He's able to do some things that I am not able to do. Simon's power is outpaced by Philip. And so Simon clings to Philip. He has wonder and amazement at what Philip was able to do. And we'll return to Simon's faith here in just a few moments with with verse 18 and on. Verse 14, we see that the Samaritans believe the apostles in Jerusalem here about the Samaritans believing Peter and John, two of the really most essential apostles, they go down to the Samaritans, they pray. The Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit. Verse 17, they laid their hands on them and that's when the Holy Spirit comes. Now it seems like that's all good. We could just kind of keep on going from there. But there's a big kind of question 
that looms out. Is this the normative pattern for how things come about? Something seems a little bit off. And so we're considering three major events here in the lives of the Samaritans. These should be on the screen. The first one is conversion or regeneration. Coming to faith in Christ, being made new. The second one is the reception of the Holy Spirit. And the third one is water baptism. Now, all three of these are closely tied together in the book of Acts. But their order is still important. And so we want to think about what what order are these supposed to come in? The Samaritans had not received the Spirit, but it does seem that they had been converted and that they had been baptized. And this doesn't seem to be the usual pattern in Acts or in the rest of the Scriptures. Acts chapter 2, verse 38, all three of these are tied closely together. In chapter 9, for Paul, what we're going to see here in just a couple of weeks, again, all three are closely tied together. In chapter 10, we're going to see Cornelius and fellow Gentiles come to faith in Christ. But they receive the Spirit first, and then they're baptized. And then in chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, it's going to be kind of the ones that most closely align with the Samaritans here. The disciples of John are in Ephesus They are baptized, they receive the Spirit, then when Paul lays his hands on them. Now a couple things to to kind of note, to, to remember that we even just mentioned a few minutes ago. Acts is historical. It's the the establishing of the early church. It's unique. We're transitioning from the old covenant to the new covenant. And so we must use the Bible to help us interpret, is this the normative pattern? So we're going to look at a few places in John that Jesus spoke and then a few places in Paul's letters where he spoke. John chapter 1 verse 13, he talks about becoming children of God by being born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So Jesus says you have to be born of God. John chapter 3, verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He must be born again, and we're going to see that's going to be by the Spirit in chapter 3, John chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Salvation comes through the work and the birth of of the Spirit in us. That is true for all of us in this room. Jesus emphasizes that. And then we see it more emphasized in Paul's letters. And I recognize I'm giving you even a lot of, a lot of verses here, but I want us to be able to be confirmed that baptism does not then bring the Spirit. I had a close friend at Furman coming out of the, the Church of Christ background where that said you had to be baptized in order to be saved or in order to receive the Spirit. But the Scriptures as a whole do not support that. Romans chapter 8, verse 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. The Spirit of Christ must be in us. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, for in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. 
The Spirit coming into us baptizes us into the body. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The Spirit is the one who regenerates us. Titus chapter 3, verse 5, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. I think this is probably the most important verse in, the, in this order. He saved us, Jesus saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit washes over us. The Spirit baptizes us, cleanses us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. All of these super key things that are tied up in conversion in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. So the Spirit coming and conversion or regeneration taking place, they happen at the same time. Or or Trevor and I were even talking this week when we were doing, we normally uh, do teaching team on on Thursdays and try to talk through our, our passage. We were talking about how the Spirit is really the one who comes in us even prior to conversion, to work in us to mature our hearts, to draw us to Jesus. And then we're brought to a saving faith in him. So what happens here is a little bit out of order. Conversion comes by the work of the Spirit. We know that had to happen. But the complete indwelling of the Spirit was delayed. And we don't see that until verse 17. So why does this happen? There's a number of things to kind of note in thinking about why this happens. I've got three main reasons. The first one is thinking about Peter and the apostles. So Matthew chapter 16, verse 9, Jesus tells Peter that he is given the keys to the kingdom. Peter is kind of established as, as almost this uh, lead apostle or, or this very important apostle the one who is given the keys. And we are going to see him play super important roles in three key chapters in Acts. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes in Jerusalem on the Jews, and then Peter is the one who follows it up with the proclamation of the word. He's the spokesperson for the Spirit coming. In Acts 8, right here, Peter comes, he lays his hands on him, on the Samaritans, and the, the Spirit comes. In Acts chapter 10, the Spirit is going to be the one, or Peter is going to be the one that is preaching, and the Spirit is going to draw the Gentiles, the non-Jews, to himself. I think it's important to note also in, in each of these sections, we're not talking about single individuals, but we're talking about groups of people, communities. Acts chapter 2, commonly referred to as, as Pentecost. We might refer to it as Jewish Pentecost. And in Acts chapter 8, the section we're in tonight, our headline might be the Samaritan Pentecost, when the the Spirit comes on the Samaritans. But then also Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, Philip the evangelist plays such a vital role, and he will continue to play a vital role in the church going forward but he is not one of the apostles. And it was important to have the apostles present at the official start of the Samaritan church, just like they're going to be present 
uh, just like they were present at the start of the Jewish church, Acts 2, and then the Gentile church in Acts 10. So Peter and the apostles is one reason this happens. The second reason is a historical redemptive confirmation. There's this, these, those are kind of big words to think about, but historical, just meaning history, what has taken place, redemptive being that, that God has been redeeming a people to himself. And we see divine approval of this new missionary step that goes beyond Judaism with the coming of the Spirit. And God is now fully incorporating Samaritans into uh, the community of Jerusalem Christians who already had the Spirit, and he's going to do the same with the Gentiles. In chapter 2, verse 17 in Acts, uh, uh, Peter is quoting Joel, saying that the Spirit is going to be poured out on all flesh. And that is what is happening here in Acts chapter 8, and we're going to see it again in Acts chapter 10. So there's a historical redemptive side. And then the last one, the last reason the Spirit doesn't come until faith has come and then baptism is to see unity in the body of Christ. So we've kind of been talking about three different groups of people, the Jews, the Hellenist, and the Samaritans. There are not, historically, there's not the best relationships between the Jews and the other two groups of people. So the Hellenists and the Jews were at, at odds, but we start to see resolution with that in Acts chapter 2 and then Acts chapter 6. But then the Samaritans and the Jews have been, have had animosity between each other for centuries, for a very long period of time. And so if the Jewish apostles had been the first missionaries to come to the Samaritans, they could have easily been turned away. They could have been kept at arm's length, been told to go back home. We don't want whatever you are trying to sell. And so Philip is a Hellenist himself who has had difficult relationships with the Hebraic Jews. He is the evangelist along with fellow Hellenists to the Samaritans. So he goes and he preaches Christ. People turn by faith to him. They're baptized. But then if the Spirit had come... There would, have been, there would have been no connection to the Jerusalem church. And the Hebraic Jews in Jerusalem would have had doubts or would have had more suspicions than they already had about the Hellenists and the Samaritans. And the Jerusalem church might not have accepted the Samaritan church because the Samaritans and the Hellenists are historically known to corrupt Judaism. And so John and Peter, highly thought of in the Jerusalem church, and who would have now been considered brothers by those who have come to faith in Christ, they are present for the start of the Samaritan church. And then they're there in, a, in an important way. They can go back to the Jerusalem church. We're going to learn that in verse 25. They go back, and they're going to be able to confirm this is not a heretical church. This is a true church that is led by Jesus. And so the Samaritans are part of the same church that started in Jerusalem. They're following the same God, confessing faith in the same Christ, filled with the same Spirit. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, all are one in Christ. And so God was concerned for the unity of the body. 
going on in verse 18. We're going to get to dive into specifically Simon's faith in Jesus. Now, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So we have this closing section where we dive in to Simon the sorcerer, Simon the magician, and his faith. And really helpfully, Trevor, Trevor uh, and I were, were discussing this passage, and he really helpfully pointed uh, me back to Ananias and Sapphira in chapter 5. If you guys remember, Ananias and Sapphira deceive the apostles with money, just as Simon does here, their hearts are not right with God. In chapter 5, verse 4, they are said to have contrived the deed in their hearts and to, lie, to have lied to God, not man. Here in our passage tonight, Simon's heart is said to be not right with God. Now, Simon is uh, maybe... Uh, lucky God's grace is poured out on him in, in, in some way or mercy is shown to him. He's not judged immediately as best we know, like Ananias and Sapphira who are just immediately die in chapter five. We also see a connection because Peter is the one who confronts both. So Simon, this ma magician, is essentially giving the illusion of faith. In the parable of the sowers, uh, Matthew 13, he, Simon is in many ways the second seed. He's the seed that falls on rocky ground. It, it grows up, it's, it sprouts up, but there's no depth of soil, there's no root, and it is destroyed by the sun. Simon is, is not converted. His heart is not right with God. He needs to repent from his wickedness. He is enslaved to bitterness and to sin in verse 23. Peter says he has no part in this matter, no part in the church. The intent of Simon's heart is bent on himself rather than God's glory. Jesus addressed people like uh, Simon in John chapter 2, where Jesus said that he would not, or Jesus does not entrust himself to certain people who only believe in his name simply because of the signs being done. Simply because there are amazing signs being done around them and people say they believe in Jesus, Jesus is not entrusting himself to them. Simon's faith, like those in John 2, is based on miraculous signs. It's not true commitment to Jesus. Simon, instead of turning, 
instead of submitting himself to the truth of the gospel, instead of truly turning to the Lord Jesus, simply asked Peter in verse 24 to pray that none of what he just said would take place. He just says, don't let any of that happen to me. And in verse 25, we see that Peter and John return to Jerusalem and they preach the gospel to even more Samaritans. So in thinking about our passage, I feel like in so many ways we're, we're kind of all over the place. So many things are happening back and forth. But a couple of things to, to really try to pull out from these 25 verses is we see that the gospel is scattering. And unlike in the Old Testament, the scattering of the church is not a sign of judgment. It's actually a judgment on the enemies of the gospel. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the preached word, against Christ going forth. So if I was to summarize our our passage tonight in kind of one key principle, it should be on the screen. God scatters gospel seed through ordinary people to gather up more ordinary people from all nations. God is scattering to then gather a people to himself. God scatters through persecution. He scatters through hardship. He scatters through trial. He scatters gospel seed that goes forth through ordinary people who preach, who talk about Jesus as they go to then gather up more ordinary people from all nations. So if you were in this room hearing these words, we can think about whether we identify with Simon. Simon, this this person we learn about at the end of our passage who has a wrong intent of his heart. Is our faith have no root to it? We want to look at the intent of our heart and we want to turn to Christ. If you know you don't believe, I beg that you would see that Jesus is the one who atones for your sins. That is the good news of the gospel. And if you turn by faith to Christ, the Spirit will be working in you throughout that whole time and the Spirit will come in you, just as we see in Acts 8. And we can see genuine faith, and we will find joy in Christ. And as we turn by faith to Christ, if we are in Christ here tonight, I pray that we would participate in sowing seed. We gather here week after week, and at the end of our service, we say, Church, you were sent. We could say, church, you were scattered. You were sent out to go and preach the gospel, to try to help gather more people, to see strangers become neighbors and neighbors become part of the family of God. And then we gather again as a family. So God scatters gospel seed through ordinary people like you and me to gather up more ordinary people from all nations. 
In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then after that, there's some questions for reflection in uh, your bulletin, at the bottom of, of your bulletin. would encourage you to, to think about those, pray through those, ask the Lord what he is doing, and then respond accordingly. If you need a journal, if you need to pray, if you need to talk to your spouse, your community group leader, your friend that's sitting beside you, or if you want to come talk to, to me, I'll be in the back. You can come talk to Trevor. We'd love to hear how the Lord is working in you. And I pray tonight that for all of us, we've taken one step in maturity to pushing towards Christ and to pushing towards making Jesus known, which is our vision as a church. Let's pray. God, you are eternal and infinite and have been working throughout all of time, totally uh, content and joyful in perfect harmony in triune relationship. And yet out of your, your goodness, you decided to, to create a people, people who, who would then choose to sin and yet you have been working to, to call and redeem a people to yourself. And we get to taste that all throughout the Old Testament. And Lord, now as we get to study the book of Acts, we get to see the bride of Christ established, the church formed. We get to see the church scattered to see more people gathered to yourself. Lord, I pray that you would help the intent of our hearts to be genuine and pure before you. Holy God, we are filled with sin. We are sinners to our core. None is righteous. No, not one. We fall short of your glory. We pursue the things that we want to pursue. And yet, Lord, we, we beg that you would bring us to repentance. If we are not found in Christ, bring us to repentance and faith in Christ for the very first time. And Lord, if we are found in Christ, bring us to repentance and let us put our faith in Christ for the hundredth time, for the thousandth time, for the millionth time. And help purify the intent of our heart let us not be like Simon who, who purely seeks signs and wonders. Lord, we know that we will see that. You have taken dead hearts and, and made them alive. You've healed marriages. You've restored relationships. And you work miraculously. And yet, Lord, you work through through ordinary people preaching Christ and him crucified to see other people drawn to yourself. So Lord, I pray that you would help us in our evangelistic fervor with, with neighbors, with coworkers, with family, with friends. Lord, as we, as we move locations of where we gather as a body, as we move soon to 407 Ridgewood Drive, would we seek to scatter seed scatter gospel seed in that community and would we see new life come new faith in Christ come about
Lord, I pray that you would help us to mature as individuals and mature as a body and that your spirit would be found upon us. We need your spirit to work, to hold us fast and to mature us in the faith. Lord, help us to make Jesus known. We love you. Amen.